Pump up the volume, it's part two of the Who's Round with Soundmen Pat Hyam and Mike McCarthy. Boom boom. So, yes, I, I didn't do an awful lot of drama. Um, but if one was on the studio floor, perhaps drama was slightly more exacting, certainly from microphone boom operating. That was, uh, that was an exciting element. Um, and um, yes, again, you were concentrating on getting the best possible pickup from the artist's delivery. Mm. Um, working on an audience show on a boom was harder uh, because you had an audience rostrum in the studio, live audience, and sets arranged in front. But you also had PA systems so that the audience could hear the, the dialogue and what was going on. Technically, you didn't want the microphones that were on set to pick up what the audience loudspeakers were delivering because then you get what's called PA coloration, which sounds nasty. So the mics had to actually work much closer to the artists than you would in a drama studio because you don't have any outside interference. And the, the, the LE side of things, you had to be pretty hot on boom operating to get the mic as close as you can without getting it into shot. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that was part of the trick. Mm. Uh, you know, for me, you see, they are two different worlds and there were some wonderful drama mixers and I would never be able to turn out the sort of sound they did but what I didn't enjoy about drama was there were a lot of technical problems because there would be big sets there would be archways there'd be little difficult corners and in the days of using boom microphones which are absolutely wonderful, you can put them anywhere, but of course the set has got to be lit. Um, and the lighting supervisor will want to create the right mood, the right patches of light, the right feeling on the background, and it can look absolutely stunning. You stick a long pole of a boom into the middle of this lot, and suddenly you've got shadows of the microphone on the set. I mean, this was the skill of the good lighting supervisor was that he could light and still allow for the booms to come in but by its very nature drama had so many more of these during the rehearsal stages these problems of the artist going to a particular position the boom moving to that position and there'd be a nasty shadow um, because the lighting supervisor is not going to anticipate every difficulty when he's initially putting his lamps up and there'd be negotiations and he might move a lamp and we might move the exact position of the mic somewhere else. And for some personalities in South, that was the joy of it, was the negotiation, the, 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 the trying to get the as best sound you can from a situation where there were conflicts of mm. a the, the size of the camera shot and the lighting. And I didn't enjoy that element. And going on to light entertainment, two one is or whatever people tended to come on face the front, speak up, and get off. 
Um, yes, occasionally there'd be the odd lighting problem, but it was much more about creating the show than overcoming the mechanical problems. Mm. And it's again, it's why I suppose so many people are just different. I mean, there are those who really just enjoy the nitty-gritty uh, 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 and the negotiation. But I didn't enjoy it. So that. you weren't there to solve a puzzle? No, yeah, no. Yeah. I just wanted to get the sound out of what was happening and, and make it exciting. Um, but there were fine mixers who they would spend hours and hours in this. So I wonder if you could help us here. And the boom operators would suggest. But our personalities are different. Well, of course, with light entertainment, you are inevitably going to to encounter, and you've mentioned some of them already, some of the greats of of comedy that we still watch to this day. So, uh, how is it working with some of these people, and who sticks out for you particularly? I think one thing that I actually do remember um, was working on the Frankie Howard show, and I didn't realise that everything was scripted. All the oohs and ahs and ooh, no, ma'am, you know. Everything was written down. It wasn't ad-libbed at all. And he never liked doing a full rehearsal with giving all the dialogue. So you'd get to some point where he was about to deliver one of his sort of rambling, um, funny bits. And the PA, the production assistant in the gallery, would say, right, it's on this for the next ten minutes, move on to the next link, to the next section. And so we would actually never hear what was going to go on until it actually happened. So mm. that's the way he liked to work. Um, but I think... I'm trying to think of um, some of the light entertainment stuff I did. Well, I, I did um, some of Benteen's Square World. Um, and he was... Mike probably knows him better than I do, but... Um, he was slightly manic in a way, mm. wasn't he? But then this is this is the line between genius and <laughs> yes. insanity, yes. isn't yes. it? Yes. You know, yes. the, um, he he would ask for outlandish things and get away with it yes. um, because he would decide it would actually work. Mm. Um, I never worked with Morecambe and Wise, to my um, great distress. I would love to have worked on that, but I saw something. It was a repeat just recently on, on television. Do you remember the wonderful sequence they did for There's Nothing Like a Dame with all the, mm, uh, the, news the newsreaders yeah. uh, 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 being brought in as the chorus? And the director on that occasion had choreographed it so that they were to do cartwheels and backflips and this, that and the other. Well, of course, the real newsreaders were not expected to do that. So the director said, OK, that's all right, I'll put in stunt doubles. You know. And Eric Morecambe apparently couldn't understand how it was going to work. He said, it'll never work, it'll never work. And Ernest Maxim, the director, said, no, he said, leave it to me, said, it'll all be done on the edit. And, of course, it works brilliantly mm. because of the way it was, was shot and intercut. And you really believe that it's Richard Baker doing a double backflip <laughs> over the palm tree, you know. <laughs> It's a brilliant sequence. Yeah, absolutely. So, in a lot of way, the the the, um, the artists sometimes don't trust the medium. Um, a lot of the early artists came from Variety, as, as you probably realise, and they were used to doing a stand-up show on on stage, 
um, and television was a different medium for them. Um, I think, again, some of the, some of the things I worked on, um, David Nixon, you remember the mm. uh, television magician, magician yeah. conjurer? Um, some of the guest illusionists he had on didn't like television because the cameras were far too, uh, not intrusive, but critical. Um, if they're on stage and the audience is several feet away, they can get away with their sleight of hand, but not for the television camera. Mm. It's too close. Um, and therefore they had to, I suppose they had to brass up their act a bit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but there were some very clever illusions that I remember seeing done in, in, in front on the stage of the television theatre. Um, what else, Mike? You worked with a lot yeah, of Yeah, Mike, stuff. you were, you yes. were a, a roll call of the greats. Mm. All individual characters, really. I mean, you mentioned... Spike Milligan, an interesting man. And as with so many, forgetting that you're a comedian, of course, and so many comedians are comedians by their very personality and can often be quite difficult people. But that is because they're driven by their comedy. Um, that Spike had no trust that in anybody around him. And the days in the studio were very, very hard. To talk to him outside the studio, a lovely man, but when he was focused on creating his comedy, I mean, God bless him, but he was a nightmare. Um, but that was the way the man created his his comedy. Um, the two Ronnies, Ronnie Barker was the writer and creator of most of it. Um, Ronnie Corbett had his equal strengths, but again, very difficult different personalities. Before a television show is recorded, there's normally a warm-up um, where someone talks to the audience and welcomes them, and then perhaps the artist comes out and talks to them. So Ronnie Barker would come and speak with the audience, and he would like the whole audience lit so he could see them, and he could banter with them, and joke with them, and they'd be very happy. And then Ronnie Corbett would be introduced, who liked the audience to be in total darkness. <laughs> um, and for him to only be in a, in a follow spot, so he couldn't see the audience. You know, it's just such two totally different personalities. And when Ronnie rehearsed his chair monologues, there must be nobody in the studio, and it must just be the follow spot on him. But again, that was the way he worked, and works now. Um, just different personalities. And... Again, from a sound point of view, you've got to allow the people to create the way, in the way they want to create. And, and of course, again, with, with being a comedian, you will be aware of hearing the PA in the theatre, in the house, or wherever you are. Um, and trying to give that security to a comedian in a television studio is very, very important. Because I would never be a comedian Median. I would never stand up in front of people and try and tell jokes. And I think, how awful if you walk out on the stage and say, good evening, folks, and you get absolutely nothing. And you're not aware that the room is filling with your voice. Um, there are reasons why you can't have too much PA, because as Pat mentioned earlier, you get coloration. But from our point of view, you've got to give an artist 
that feeling that they are enveloped with their voice and their voice is getting to, to the other people. So it's, again, it's a compromise between having too much coloration from the audience, mics and the audience. Um, and I just felt such sympathy for anybody trying to do comedy. Um, things like Dad's Army, they were mainly actors. And so they were, and with a very definite pecking order. Um, really? Yes, the cast pecking order was how they responded to each other as well. But they weren't so concerned about the feeling in the studio. They, they, they were more concerned about the acting and getting that side of it right. But certainly any comedians... Um, Morecambe and Wise, Tulanis, they want to feel that the audience are hearing them. I mean, that is their comfort blanket. I mean, I assume I'm right in this. I mean, yeah. having thought this all these years, but I mean, you're the, the man that would know. Um, as they just to stand there and feel nobody's hearing anything, I mean, they're not getting any laughs back. I mean, yes, it may be the material, but the, the, you must give them at least something to start with. It's what propels. Yes, yes, yes. And when you're not getting laughter is when you plant on a false smile and just plough well, yes. for your own I'm sake. Sure. But yes, it's not yeah. a good performance when you do that. You no, know? It's, a, no. It's, a, it's a safety. Yes, and so so much of it is what comes out of the speaker on the television at home is quite a, a small element. I mean, there are all these other areas of these comfort zones. If you've got a, a musical item um, and more and more each individual performer in a, a group or a band will want their own monitor speakers because, again, that's giving them feedback of their voice of the other players. There is a lot of work goes into providing the right environment for them, all, all their monitor mixes. Um, that The voice coming out, of the, say, coming out at home is just the end result of all these, these bits and pieces, but it's part of the challenge, you know, that, uh, which is good fun. I've got a couple of stories of working with um, drama artists. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy for technicians to think, okay, we're all we're all part of the same team, in, in, which is very necessary. Uh, but as a person, I can be very influenced by watching a person's an artist's performance. And I can remember needing to go and wire up an actress. I think it may have been Geraldine James on a on a television movie. And she knew she had to wear a radio mic, and I was just waiting for my moment to go and um, get it all fixed up. And she was in a corner of the studio, winding herself up into her character, and I was terrified. I, I hated to approach her because I was... I was really affected by the performance she was she was giving. No audience there, you know. And eventually, she saw me hovering, and she said, "Oh, um, radio mic time!" And she completely snapped back out of it. And I was impressed with that, you know, the fact that she could put on one hat and then take it off. Um, working with Glenda Jackson on another production. Um, Again, she could be, a, a, she could come over as being quite fierce, and it was a film location, so uh, she she had her, her trailer, as the Americans call it, you know, the makeup room and everything, and we decided that we would try and wire everybody up with radio microphones because it was an exterior set, so we didn't know quite 
what we were up against in terms of extraneous noise. But the first few shots were fine, just on a mic boom, open mic as we call it. So uh, it was decided that we could de-rig Glenda with her radio mic so she didn't need it. And I tapped on the trailer door and the sound department, yes, come in. I said, well, I can take your radio mic off. And she hadn't been on set at that point. So she looked at me and she said, don't I speak? And I said, yes, of course you do, but we're actually doing it a different way. Oh, you're doing it a different way. So um, the, the outer shell, if you like, uh, snapped and that was great. You know, and I got on very well with her after that. But uh, yes, uh, dramatic a actors can be very um, forceful. Some can be very, very nice and quite chummy with the cruel sort of uh, offset, as it were. Um, again, I remember going down to Rome to do an interview with um, Timothy Dalton, who was one of the Bonds at one point. Mm. And uh, he was working on an Italian production. And uh, we did the interview with him, and I was chatting to my cameraman, because we'd flown out from England. And he suddenly said, you guys English? Um, yes. Oh, great, he said. I'm free for the afternoon. He said, can I hang out with you guys? He said, I want to talk English. He said, everybody else is Italian, except for the sound man on, on, the, uh, on the unit. And he said, uh, I'm feeling out of it. <laughs> so he, he became a friend, which was, which was uh, really nice. But uh, as I say, going back to the television side of things, Mike, do you remember that we were actually forbidden to fraternise with the artists. Yes, and yes, yes, that was very much the case. That um, we were very much separated. Um, this broke down over the years, but that's because I suppose television built up in really as a technical medium to start with, and because the technology ruled everything and things were not very reliable, some people were mending things. But yes, it, there, there was a great separation, but. Over the years, that did diminish, and more so when the studio crews started to go out and do the location shoots for the inserts. So, um, again, the early Dad's Armies, it, the stuff done on the uh, up in Thetford was done by film department. But so they did that filming, and we did the studio stuff. But later, we went out and started doing our own inserts, and suddenly you realise, yes, there are all. We were all people together, and and that was became much more relaxed, and did it. So. Yeah, the loca location work I found, you know, working in television, the location work was very much freer. Everybody was having a bit of a good time, really. Yes, and, and you had to muck in um, mm. because the rain would suddenly come down, so you're all scuttling for cover, and you're all covering your stuff, and people putting out umbrellas for people to stop their makeup running. And you were a complete unit of people, um, whereas in television, initially we were the crew who came into the studio. They the artist came in through makeup and came into the studio, and there was this separation. And one of you was saying, "Why did I do the shows I did?" I've normally put it down to the fact that I used to laugh at technical rehearsals. I mean, as, as Pat mentioned, any program, whether it's a drama or a situation comedy, was rehearsed somewhere other than the studio, um, church halls or whatever. Then the BBC built their own rehearsal block, and the 
particularly with situation comedy, they would perhaps rehearse, uh, again, as Pat said, without any scene, we put marks on the floor, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then on a Thursday, the technical people will come and look at it because the lighting man wants to know where people are going to stand um, and the costume people are talking about costume and I want to know where people are, how I can go into my things. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there can be nothing worse than having rehearsed a comedy show for three days. All these people appear in front of you holding studio plans so you can relate to what they're doing on in their little space to how it's going to be in the studio. Working your socks off with funny material and getting nothing back. Mm. Um, it got to the, certainly uh, with Mike Yarwood, it got to the stage, if he didn't get any reaction, he cut it because he was always of a nervous disposition. But, no, I mean, I suddenly, very quickly, I said, well, you know, we should be laughing because it's funny material. Let's try and make our notes while we can, but at least respond. And so, I was, I would normally put down the fact that I did all these shows because I turned up at these Thursday <laughs> rehearsals and I laughed. Yeah. I mean, whether it was funny or not. But, I mean, it, it, again, it's trying to think, well, if I was an actor... And you're getting nothing back. I mean, that must be awful. Mm. And particularly if it's new material. I mean, Dad's Army type show, which is written <coughs> um, and scripted, you're reading what is there. But particularly if you're doing a new comedy show and it's new material, I mean, you must want somebody to enjoy it at that stage. So, yes, so Thursdays was going to laugh at people day, really. <laughs> and loudly. Whereas you, Pat, you turned your back on television and you'd, I mean, let's mention some of the films you worked on, um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Man with the Golden Gun and Alien. So, so a, a very different environment. Very much so. Um, I'd always wanted to work on film and um, it was only that uh, somebody that my parents knew said, well, I could give you a job in the film industry. He said, but... Uh, if you take my advice, he said, try and get into the BBC because they will teach you in two years what it will take you ten years to pick up. So I sort of um, gathered up my loins, as it were, and wrote to the BBC and I said, I don't quite understand why you've managed to survive all this time without <laughs> me working for you. And um, I think they may have been slightly impressed with my cheek because I, I got an interview um, and the guy... Uh, was from personnel and he listened to what I had to say and what I wanted to do and he said well I think you're going to be more used to the engineering department if you're interested I can fix you an interview tomorrow so I went in for the second interview and um, came up against one of the chief engineers of the BBC who proved to me that I didn't know Ohm's law and I knew that I did <laughs> And I went out of there with my tail between my legs, thinking, oh, well, that's it, you know, better think of something else. Anyway, I was called for a selection board, and uh, when I went in, to my horror, I saw that the same engineer was on the board behind the desk. And I thought, oh, dear, no, no way. Anyway, I got through most of the interview, and then the chairman of the board said... Um, well, I don't know if Mr. Esler wants to ask you any questions, uh, Mr. Hyam. Um, and Esler said, no, I think Mr. Hyam and I know where we stand. <laughs> <laughs> right, that really is it, you know. But to my great delight, something like six weeks later, I was actually offered a place in television technical operations, 
which is where I met up with similar chaps like Mike here. In fact, we were on the same residential training course. And um, to a certain extent, we've, we've kept up, although I must admit it was 50 years <laughs> since I last, a moment. last met him. But uh, the BBC, I think, personnel-wise, were very good at picking the right people and putting them together. Um, which takes us back to what you asked before, that do you still keep, keep in touch? And the answer is yes, because we were all like-minded individuals. So that was one, I think, one good thing that the BBC could do. They, they could actually pick the right people somehow. And it was always to the effect that if you could prove a knowledge of butterflies' back legs and you'd really researched that and knew everything about it, that was the sort of person that they were going to take who was self-motivated rather than somebody with a long list of technical qualifications. And speaking to various people over the years, yes, they spoke about their particular interests at the board, not, because I mean, my technical knowledge was not very good either. Um, but it was this finding people who could drive themselves and respond to what was going on around them. Which was, it did work very, very well. But to talk about the film industry, yes, it was a little bit of a different discipline. For instance, um, there was never, never any live audiences on a comedy film, for instance. Um, drama films, yes, very similar to television. Um, again, go for the best dialogue as you can for sound, because everything else is then put in afterwards. Um, except for a couple of movies I worked on, there was a very nice children's movie where the director wanted a bit of ethereal music to set the scene for the young cast. So I had a tape recorder and loudspeaker unit up on the um, um, gantries where the lights were all fitted, playing in this music, which was actually used from another film and when we heard it back in rushes looking at the day's work the following day it worked extremely well because the the sound was ethereal it was just picked up by the mics and and, and it set the scene beautifully but it couldn't be used because it was copyrighted from another film you know which was a shame um ridley scott um who directed Alien, which I was lucky enough to work on. Strangely enough, that was a very boring movie to shoot. Um, it was a composite set. In other words, everything was joined together so that the artists could move around as, as necessary. And um, once we'd put radio mics on everybody, there wasn't much else to do except go and make the tea and toast. But uh, Ridley was a... Brilliant director. Alien was was made on the edit table. Really, it was the way it was cut together. But he wanted a piece of music at one point, um, just to set the scene for the artists, which was the final scene where Ripley, the last surviving member, climbs into the space capsule to escape. And um, Ridley asked for this record to be played, which turned out to be. Isaiah Tomita's version of the planets 
Um, and I liked it so much, I actually went and bought the record. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, Alien was... Nobody knew at that time it was going to form such a, a cult thing, and, of course, all the spin-offs later on. But uh, I think Ridley mentioned in an interview, he said, well... He said, really and truly, it's just a variation of the old dark house routine. He said, there's something nasty in the woodpile and you don't know what it is. And he kept the audience guessing and he kept us guessing as well because sometimes we, we didn't even know what was supposed to happen. Special effects department did. Um, the moment where the creature, the embryo creature, comes out of the chest of uh, poor old actor John Hurt Nobody knew really what was going to happen. Certainly Ridley didn't tell the cast, and he had three cameras on it, one holding a wide shot, and two were picking up reactions. And um, it was so effective that one of the artists, one of the lady artists, she was so disgusted by it that she actually went behind the set and threw up. <laughs> Great. Keeps it real. Keeps it real, yeah. But, um, yes, I, I had no idea that it was going to be that that strong in, 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 the, in the audience. Um, the, the bloke that played the alien was a seven-foot-tall Maasai uh, from uh, Kenya. I think it was a Maasai come from Kenya. He was the nicest bloke you could ever think of, you know. <laughs> he was had this great headdress which the head which was mechanically operated with uh, hydraulic mechanisms for the jaws and everything and, uh, but i suppose in a way that's the beauty of working on films with things like that you you get to know how things are done how how, how the special effects guys sort of put it all together and everything and, um, and working on some of the bonds some of the car chases um when it's all edited it looks as though it's all happening as one one thing but no it takes days and weeks, shot by shot. Um, and a few cars get wrecked, which always seems a shame to me, because <laughs> they can't really put them together again afterwards. <laughs> and whereas, uh, Mike, you stayed at the BBC, and uh, amongst this swathe of um, light entertainment, yes, you, you returned to Doctor Who with three Tom Baker stories, Terror of the Zygons, Visible Enemy, The Sunmakers. So do you have any memories of, of those in particular? Regrettably not, isn't it awful? Um, no, I mean, they, they, they were projects and we did them and we moved on. Um, so I'm sorry to be... So no, <laughs> three scant <laughs> credits amongst, amongst a huge uh, list of things. So, well, OK, I'm, mm -hmm. I must let you have lunch. Oh, no. um, so I guess I have, I have to ask you of um, um, highlight, the personal highlights then of, of all the work that you've done over the years that either that you enjoyed the most or that you're proudest of? That's a very difficult question. Um, the one sketch that just sticks in my mind is the two Ronnie's four candles sketch. Uh. And I don't know why. And also their Christmas version with, with Andre Previn um, playing the, the piano concerto. It's the preview. It's the preview. Yeah. Um, but just at such a did I, and again, as you were saying, you don't know that these things are going to be so good when you're going to do them, and quite often you do them, and they're done and they go out. But 
suddenly they, they, they get a momentum of their own. That it's uh, no, that, 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 I do enjoy seeing those two sketches again for for whatever reason. I don't know, but it's. Uh, and what about Hitchhikers, for which you won a BAFTA? Very enjoyable. Um, we used various new techniques, which were a challenge. Um, we also did a stereo version, which was the early days of stereo, which we didn't really know much about. Um, so again, trying to research how to do that. Um, I still think the mono mix is better than the stereo mix, but um, but it's silly. I can't quantify why. Um, I think the mono version has much more impact than the stereo version. And I've thought about it on a lot of occasions, but I really can't. I mean, it's the same music, and it's the same dialogue, and it's the same effects. But for me, the mono version just work, work, works better. But it, it it was an interesting show to do, and I hadn't heard the radio version, so I came to it fresher yeah. as it was. And it's only latterly that I, I listened to the radio version. I mean, there was some stunning stuff in there. But again, we used the same music as they used for the, the radio series. I mean, it was composed by the same people. It, 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 it was a very interesting show to do. And Pat, highlights for you? Television-wise, um, I liked the show-busy stuff. Um, any of the shows we used to do in the television theatre, uh, with dancing girls, orchestras, bands. Um, they, they, I won't name any particular shows because some aren't very popular nowadays. But um, yes, I enjoyed that. One or two of the dramas I worked on, I was pleased with the effort I put in today. Film-wise, um, Fiddler on the Roof, that was innovative in certain sound techniques which I brought from the BBC to the film industry. Um, some resistance to what I wanted to do, but at least I managed to overcome that and prove that the systems would actually work. And it picked up the Oscar for Best Sound. Even though I'm not named, uh, it's nice to be associated with an award winner in that respect. And um, the two Bond movies I was lucky enough to work on. So uh, it was again, it was nice to know that one was working on the biggest picture that was in Pinewood Studios at the time, plus the foreign locations involved. Mm, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Adventures of a Plumber's Mate, Pat. That was a fun. <laughs> that was a fun. That that was a sort of soft core. Well, it wasn't really soft core, but um, that was a that was something a I knew nothing about. <laughs> delightful film to work on. It was produced and directed by a couple of brothers, um, Stanley uh, Long, Long, and I can't remember the other one's name. One directed, one produced, and we were filming in real places all over South London. And um, their mum and dad used to bring us our tea and buns <laughs> out of the back of the BMW saloon. Wherever we happened to be, they would pull up, open the lid, there's a tea urn, chaps, you know, help yourself. And a good cast of um, fairly standard characters. I mean, there was Arthur Mullard was in it, I seem to remember. Um, and, yeah, it, it was a lightweight uh, comedy I've actually got a DVD of it, 
and uh, it was it was it was great fun to work on. There was, <laughs> there was one little slightly naughty story, I suppose, that the the, the lead chap's girlfriend had to climb on his motorbike and be carted off somewhere. And uh, after we'd done one shot, Caraman looked up at the director and said, um, hmm, I think we just caught a flash of your knickers, dear. And she said, I'm not wearing any. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that, I think we can only follow that with, um, with the charities, gentlemen, that you've kindly given your time to uh, uh, to help by uh, uh, doing this, so the listeners will donate because you've got two. You've got this will be a, a feature length one, listeners, and because you've got two interviewees, you donate to two charities, please. Which are Pat. I would like anybody to support Hearing Dogs for Deaf People. Uh, my professional guild started a charity collection years ago, and that, this was our first one that we supported. We wanted to have a charity that had something to do with sound or audio, and to hear, to see these these little dogs help their owners to lead a normal life is brilliant. And basically, what they do is they are trained to react to the normal everyday sounds in a home: doorbell, phone, uh, oven timer alarm clock, smoke alarm, and when they hear it, they go and alert their owners by tapping them with their paw or jumping on the bed if it's the alarm clock. Um, smoke alarms, they come in, they tap the owner, and then they lie down flat. This is a code so that the owner knows that maybe there's something on fire or they haven't heard the alarm. Um, unlike guide dogs for the blind, they are trained to socialise. If you go to, if you see a, a, a blind guide dog working, it always says on their little coat, so do, do, not, do not distract me, I'm working. Whereas with hearing dogs, it's encouraged. If somebody likes to pat the dog, it means that their owner is having an interaction with, with a person who's a hearing person, so they can chat. And most, most people who are profoundly deaf like that can lip read which which works but uh, that's a very worthwhile charity and I would like people to um, try and support them and very appropriate for a man who spent all his life in sound <laughs> and in fact although we hadn't spoken about it I was going to go for exactly the same one which means unfortunately you don't get really? two but yes yes oh, that's okay just give yes. twice just Thank give you. twice well it'll be this, I, I suspect this will be a, a double episode so for each episode they can I'm give one that's fine if we can suggest another one because we're backwards hearing dogs again oh I know well we we, um, we installed some audio equipment for a children's hospice outside Guildford which is called Christopher's um, that's very good um, it's actually run by their full title is um, Shooting Star Chase and they provide respite services for um, parents of terminally ill children they take the children for a, a while and um, that's very worthwhile too but they wanted some audio equipment so that was our link with Sam right. mm. okay. um, so well most people when you ask them where they were when John F Kennedy was assassinated they know I suspect you two are working on Doctor Who 
because it was because <laughs> it was pretty much at around that time. Yes. Because yes. Doctor Who's first episode was broadcast the day after Kennedy's assassination. Yes. And so you would have been working on the the first Dalek story that was being yes. worked on yes. at that time. So it was all those years ago. We know exactly when it was. It was all those years ago. Um, uh, people are still interested and still listening. Uh, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out of their gentle, out there, gentlemen, as we bring this to a conclusion? Well, if the TARDIS really existed, you could whiz back in time just before that incident and try and stop it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, yes. No, but as long as there are people to support the programme, because it's ongoing and it really is tremendous show so the more people who can keep watching and keep keep the figures up will be splendid well bless you well i'm very privileged to have been part of a sort of i, I hadn't realized you hadn't seen each other for so long either until it did so so goodness me well what a joy well what what a pleasure and uh, it just remains for me to say uh, not only for your time but for your hospitality and everything else uh mike mccarthy and pat hyam thank you very much thank you thank you that was great gentlemen i didn't realize i'd taken so much of your time i'm so sorry you must be starving. That's an hour and 33 minutes. <laughs> Thanks to Pat and Mike. Their charities are Hearing Dogs for the Deaf, which is www.hearingdogs.org.uk, hearingdogs, all one word, .org.uk, or Christopher's Hospice, as he said, is part of Shooting Star Chase. Uh, they've been featured on Who's Round before. Shooting Star Chase, all one word, shootingstarchase.org.uk. There's another Who's Round next week. Thanks to both of those gentlemen. Very, very hospitable. They laid on food, wine, beer, and I had a blood test, so I couldn't have any of it. But it was very thoughtful of them. Uh, until next time, bye-bye. ZM73. It looks just the same. The car? Well, good. I didn't know the previous owner. You. I mean, my... Someone bought it for me. Many happy returns. What's your name? What's yours? Kate. Kate Butterworth. How do I know I can trust you? How do you know you can trust anyone? I don't. What have you told her? None of your business. I don't quite understand. You were in a village, you didn't know where it was, and you didn't want to be there. Don't worry. It'll all be over soon. What's your name? No names. Just, just numbers. Six. Six? Number six. Everybody wants to tell their story, don't they? <laughs> this is beginning to sound like an interrogation. Danvers, is this your idea of a joke? No, sir. Mark Stein just called. ZM73 is back and he wants to see you. Good God. If you had to escape from this village, was someone keeping you there by force? Yes. So, how did you get away? I told you, it was empty. You just woke up one morning and everyone had gone? Yes. 
Even the people trying to keep you there. Everyone had gone. Turn it off! Whatever this is supposed to achieve, turn it off! What is the village? Don't you know? Where is it? I don't know. All I know is that I escaped from it. How? I'll admit it. I'm fascinated to know your story. You want to turn my life into a book? Would that be such a bad thing? Everyone has a story. I don't tell stories. Why not? Everyone tells stories. Not me. I've got nothing to say. So you have a secret? It's all secret. There is no village. It's a Soviet fiction. Your cover story. He died in the service of his country. That's all they'd say. I can assure you that none of us has heard of this village place. Why should I believe you? Why should we believe you? Because you have some proof that I'm telling the truth. Not much proof. Precisely. We need more information from you, ZM73. Information. We want information. Did you tell them why you resigned? No. Why not? Because it was none of their damned business, and it's none of yours either. I met a man today, an extraordinary man. Well, certainly a man with an air of mystery about him. Yeah.